Welcome to the Baker Tilly U.S. Podcast, an online community developed to connect you to our partners and leaders across the globe. Subscribe today to continue discovering new and unique ways that Baker Tilly can enhance or protect your value as we discuss timely, relevant, and impactful topics. Our current series is specific to real estate professionals. We recognize that the coronavirus is affecting real estate companies and organizations across the world in unique ways. In this podcast, we will speak with Baker Tilly practice group leaders about practical real estate guidance to help you through the next several weeks and to prepare your business and employees to come back strong in the future. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Buzz House, our Baker Tilly podcast, where you can find all the buzz affecting multifamily housing. I'm Don Bernard, the partner in charge of Baker Tilly's multifamily housing practice. I'll be talking with my cohort and partner, Garrett Gibson, who also specializes in consulting and multifamily transactions around the country. We've had a few guests in the Buzz House the past couple of podcasts, and that's going to continue today by bringing in Spencer Skinner, a senior manager with Baker Tilly, who focuses on adding value to housing developers' process by finding ways to reduce design and construction costs. With Spencer in the Buzz House today, we'll focus specifically on the topic of modular construction, a trend we've been seeing around the industry pick up with some momentum. But before talking with Spencer this week, Garrick and I want to catch you up on a few updates around the industry. The first being the OCC's final release of their Community Reinvestment Act requirements, along with some news from Senator Wyden calling for housing credit enhancements in the next coronavirus bill. A big piece of news in the tax credit industry over the past few weeks is the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or OCC, finalized and released the new Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA, requirements. The OCC's goal was to simplify the CRA rules, but upon a quick read, the LIHTC industry has concerns and there could be a negative trend on tax credit equity investing. Note that when the proposed OCC requirements came out, there were more than 7,500 comments so a lot of people paying attention. Under current CRA regulations, large banks must meet the three tests to comply with CRA regulations. The lending test, the service test, and the investment test. The new rule replaces that system with a single ratio test, which measures the total dollar volume of a bank's CRA activity compared to the bank's total assets. OCC argues that this approach will greatly streamline the CRA exam process and make it more objective and transparent. In the comments on the proposed rule, groups such as the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition and NCSHA raised strong concerns about the single ratio test and the elimination of what's called the investment test. Without the investment test, banks would have substantially less incentive to make affordable housing investments because they'd be able to meet their CRA requirements solely through lending. There are provisions in these CRA rules about equity investments receiving double credit. And so as we continue to talk with banks, we'll work with you to give feedback. Also note that the compliance with this rule would not take effect until 2023 for large banks and 2024 for smaller financial institutions. So we really won't see any immediate impact and there could be, continue to be modifications to these rules as well. The other interesting item of note is that the OCC released these regulations without the backing of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve, who are two other banking regulatory agencies. CRA reform has historically been an effort of all three of these groups. So there are now two different CRA regulations. However, most tax credit banks do fall under the OCC regulation. 
Thanks, Don. Switching to Senator Wyden, who is the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Wyden listed a number of low-income housing tax provisions, many of which we have discussed in recent podcasts, ranging from suspending deadlines for place and service and other various deadlines, fixing the 4% tax credit percentage at 4%, lowering the 50% test threshold, and many in Washington believe the next round of COVID-related legislations won't begin until mid to late June, but good news nonetheless. But now we welcome our colleague Spencer Skinner. Spencer, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Garrick. Why don't we start off with, uh, you know, what would, with what we're talking about with modular construction. Sure. Uh, modular construction is essentially uh, an effort to move the primary construction activities uh, for on-site construction into a site off-site factory where the primary goal is to reduce construction labor costs of the project. Factory construction can provide any finish level to the modules the owner would, would like to see up to and including the final finish of those units, including the final paint, flooring, light fixtures, and having the modules delivered on site to the back of the truck and then craned into their final position in the building. Spencer, you noted when we were talking last week that you have a case study where you went through a process with an affordable housing sponsor, really looking at bids from suppliers of, of modular. Would you be able to tell us about the results of that, that kind of analysis? Sure, Don. Uh, the initial case study evolved out of a, a problem that a client was having where they had a, a 60 unit apartment building that had a construction gap of about six to eight million. It basically for that project worked between 30 and 35% of their construction budget. And it was related to an estimate of potential cost for that project at $235 a square foot. We started looking at this project by evaluating traditional VE options to try and bring that cost down. But even with those principles applied to the project, the cost reductions still weren't big enough to get the project into within its initial construction budget. The client was already using modular construction successfully for townhomes related to this project, but we're using traditional on-site construction for other multifamily buildings as part of this development. We proposed taking a look at utilizing modular construction for this project as well in combination with the other VE methodologies we looked at to try and close that gap a little bit more. We started looking at the client's last site built apartment building, which had a final payment application showed a construction cost of 11.8 million for that particular building. We had two separate modular manufacturers look at the plans that were utilized to build that building on site to see if they could establish a modular methodology that could reduce the construction cost and try to deliver that project for less money. When we received their bids, we accounted for the difference of their work scopes between each manufacturer related to site work and what each one may provide differently and found that the modular delivery system in either utilizing either manufacturer could have saved between 8 and 12% on the overall hard construction cost, plus deliver the project four to six months earlier. We worked with the client to design the project a little bit differently than what was in the original design scope, combining the traditional VE with the actual finished project with the modular delivery. And the expectation is that the project will more than close the expected six to $8 million gap for that particular project, and the client can reallocate those savings to other budgetary constrained pieces of the project. That's pretty interesting. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big gap to overcome. So we have a lot of listeners on this BuzzHouse podcast who happen to be developers. So Spencer, so when should a developer consider looking at a modular construction? 
Well, Garrett, there are several factors that sort of we would encourage developers to look at the modular versus a traditional delivery system. And the first is looking to see where they are within the budget. Do they have a budgetary constraint? Do they have a schedule constraint? Do they have the time within the schedule to provide proper coordination between the design documents and the modular manufacturer as there's specific design decisions that need to be made which allow for the modular construction methodology to work in its most effective manner. A lot of times installing modular components within a tight site can either be an advantage or a disadvantage based on what the site access could be for placing the crane and actually lifting the units into place. Some tight sites work, some unfortunately do not. Another constraint would be, are you geographically located close to a modular manufacturer? Because transit time can have a big in impact on budget benefits of, of going one direction or, or another. And do, are you able to work with a partner who's willing to open a facility to your project site? We've talked with a couple different manufacturers that take an approach to bring their manufacturing practice to the site rather than using and setting modulars on the back modules on the back of a truck. So there's some, depending on who your partner is, there could be some advantages there as well. And then lastly, if you're in a tight bidding environment, which limits your participation by qualified subcontractors, oftentimes you can get a bid from a module manufacturer that can reduce labor costs and deliver the modules uh, more cost effectively. Spencer, that's really, really helpful information uh, for developers. You know, this this concept of modular may be, you know, new. And, and, and Spencer, what should developers you know, expect to be responsible for if they choose to use modular construction? Well, Don, the first thing I want to mention is if you're looking to go towards a modular construction methodology and skip a general contractor, that's not really a good way to go. Owners will still need to have a general contractor to complete some on-site construction that would generally need to be done that can't be provided by the module manufacturer as well as coordinate the installation of the modules. How that can be structured with the GC can differ on the work scope, but will, will not eliminate the need for the GC. The general contractor will need to bid trades for site prep costs, including utility installation, foundations, below slab plumbing and electrical, concrete, and other site-related construction not included within the framing of the module. Modular manufacturers typically don't include ex exterior finishes in their finished products because of maintaining consistency of appearance of siding and exterior masonry. It's tough to get level lines when you're installing modules adjacent to each other, but some manufacturers may be willing to take on some of the other exterior materials such as flat roofing, uh, roof sheathing, and some other different things. So it really depends widely on the delivery system of the modular manufacturer of what can be in or out of your scope, and you'll need someone to cover the, that gap. And different manufacturers take different approaches to final finishing and connection of site installed units. Some manufacturers want to maintain the quality of the finished product to their expectations, but others will expect the owner to procure trades to connect electrical, mechanical, and other plumbing connections on site. So we'll have to carry trades to complete that work as well. Thank you, Spencer. What challenges could developers encounter during a modular project that, that they wouldn't necessarily encounter uh, in you know, contemporary construction project? Well, Garrick, a couple that come to mind as we're thinking about it is the coordination of the design within modular, modular construction methodologies can really be difficult if you don't have willing design partners or a modular manufacturer. Some designers 
are, are set in their ways on how they want to deliver a project. So they have to have an open mind and sort of work in collaboration with the modular manufacturer. And sometimes the modular manufacturer may have to accept different materials or something that, or processes that they're not necessarily familiar with to try and make a successful project to meet the design goals of those projects. Work scopes vary greatly between modular manufacturers. So when you're comparing modular manufacturers, you have to be able to understand which manufacturers providing what scope to ac accurately compare their, those bids. Because you may have a bidder that's extremely lower, but they may be providing lesser service. You may have someone that's vastly higher, but they may be providing a higher level of finish than other competitors. So you have to establish a way to close that scope gap to really understand and compare the bids when they come in. And lastly, every state has different building permitting process for free manufactured modules. Some states will have two different permitting applications for the, the pre-manufactured modules where you have to have both approved by local and state reviewers or the state may defer simply to the state. So you have to understand what those requirements are state to state, site to site, to understand what's required by different governmental bodies to get your project moving. Thanks, Spencer. I think that, I think that'll help uh, our listeners out a lot who are thinking about going down the modular project route. So I do actually, you know, I'd like to sneak in one last question while, while we have you here. What region of the country are you typically seeing modular construction the most, and, and why do you think that is? Well, Garrick, modular construction has been mostly utilized on each coast, specifically in Silicon Valley and New York City. Those two areas are mostly driven by labor costs. There's been a couple large profile projects in New York City where the developers had to have specific negotiations with their labor unions in order to capture the benefit of modular construction. And with costs in California shooting over $700,000 per unit for development, developers are starting to look for different ways and starting to capture savings with the shop rates that they're able to gain with unions rather than on-site costs. So that's sort of where I had seen it first started. The expansion from there sort of took is taking a lot of companies from California branching into Arizona and it's also expanding along the East Coast radiating out from New York City. Uh, there's a manufacturer in Idaho I know of that's also providing product for projects as far away as Denver and covering large parts of the northwestern section of the country. There's limited but expanded use in the Midwest. We've spoken with manufacturers based in Michigan delivering product in the Caribbean and another manufacturer in Atlanta who's starting to take their approach nationally. Uh, we've also heard of a developer last week who's importing modules from Europe for a project that is located on the East Coast. All, all really good information, Spencer. As we wrap up today's BuzzHouse podcast, I do want to thank our colleague Spencer Skinner for his insights and comments. And if you do have questions about how modular construction could fit into your project, please reach out to our colleague Spencer. Thank you for tuning in today, and feel free to reach out to Garrick or myself with any questions about today's podcast or brainstorm on your multifamily development. Also, please check out BakerTilly.com for many resources around COVID-19. And finally, if you have any suggested topics, please send them to build at bakertilly.com. That's B-U-I-L-D at bakertilly.com. Thank you for joining us today. To receive notification when new episodes become available, please subscribe to Baker Tilly US wherever you get your podcast.